Hello and welcome to Story Radio, the podcast for readers, writers and lovers of short stories everywhere. Today we're listening to The Necropolis Railway by Tabitha Potts. The hearse that contained the earthly remains of my erstwhile employer, John Osborne, waited outside the ornate wrought iron gates, the six black horses tossing their plumed heads. Our little troop of mourners was ushered in through a much smaller door leading to the funeral train, putting me in mind of the scriptures. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. His coffin would be swiftly conveyed into the bowels of the station, and then onto the private train compartment where he would lie in state, waiting to be transported to his final resting place in Brookwood Cemetery. A white-gloved usher led us to the first-class waiting room. There had been much discussion within the family over whether the funerary services offered by the railway company would be dignified enough, but seeing the fine marble tiling, brass lamps and stained glass windows, I felt sure that Mr. Osborne would have approved. I must confess that I was not overwhelmed with grief so much as by curiosity. My funeral invitation also served as a first-class train ticket. In the first-class waiting room, Osborne's mourners filled the benches. Were it not for my employer's untimely demise, I would most likely be travelling in a different carriage. There was a large party of mourners, from his club, his company, and his acquaintances. His widow, a stout lady dressed in dark mourning weeds, wore a weeping veil, through which her face could not be seen. The only bright points of her appearance were her hands, dripping with jewels. Their son, Archibald, a weak-chinned individual whose acquaintance I had made during our time together at university, sat beside his mother. The inestimable Flora sat next to him. In spite of her botanical name, my beloved did not call any particular flower to mind. Her whole demeanour sturdy and sensible, especially in deep black. However, there was nothing wrong with her one thousand pounds a year, and when she caught my eye, I looked back with all the passion I could muster. She lowered her lashes, in a way that in another woman might perhaps have been coquettish, and I could see blushes mottling her neck and cheeks. At last the interminable wait was over. Our white-gloved Sharon returned and led us onto the train. It seemed a very short journey from the smoky darkness of London to the rural greenery of Surrey, and we arrived at our destination, the cemetery station, where we disembarked, and walked towards the grave where the service was to be held. Even on a winter's afternoon, I was struck by the beauty of the surroundings. This cemetery was a veritable city of the dead, rows of tombstones stretched as far as the eye could see. Yet it had a verdant air, 
thanks in part to the great sequoias and many evergreens that had been planted there. It took some time to find Osborne's final resting place. Flora caught my eye again as we assembled around his grave for the service. We both knew that this ceremony meant the greatest obstacle to our union had been overcome. The sermon seemed as if it would never end. As the vicar praised Osborne fulsomely, I found his droning voice had a soporific effect. Mrs. Osborne appeared to shed a tear or two, her fat cheeks wobbling like a turkey's wattles beneath the thick veil, while Archie stared above us all, as though seeking consolation direct from the Almighty. The rest of our party returned to the cemetery station where light refreshments had been laid on, fairy cakes, fish paste and cucumber sandwiches. Flora took my arm and pulled me towards the vicar. Come, you must meet him. I pulled back from her. What, that dreary fellow, I've heard enough of him today, I think. He will officiate when... She faltered. I realised what she meant. Of course, my dear, how foolish of me, but I do need a few moments to compose myself first. I felt an unaccountable reluctance now I was so close to my goal. Very well. Why don't you take the air for a few moments, but don't take too long? Muttering my apologies, I stepped outside again. Lighting my pipe, I set off in the opposite direction. Cogitating as I was, I took little notice of where I was going, and it was only after about ten minutes that I realised I had no idea where I was. I had a general impression that the memorial stones around me seemed smaller and humbler, less flowery in their wording. Confound it, I muttered, and then noticed a young lady standing a little distance away from me, and apologetically raised my hat. I was surprised I hadn't seen her before, because what a stunner, in the modern parlance, she was. Her deep mourning dress displayed a graceful figure to its full advantage and beneath her veil I thought I could make out great ropes and twists of coppery hair, and a fine, though pale, complexion. Good day, madam. Excuse my confusion just now. I'm afraid I'm a little lost. Are you now? she murmured. Where were you going? I explained to her that I sought the first-class railway station. I would be happy to accompany you, sir. I demurred feeling that it might look a little odd, and asked her to tell me the way. I set off again in the direction she had indicated, but as I walked, I could have sworn the graveyard changed its aspect yet again. The graves and monuments seemed to loom, unnaturally tall and imposing, casting deep shadows in what I realised was now twilight. The trees around stretched their naked branches to the darkening sky, how had the day disappeared so swiftly, leaving me unaware? I kept moving along the endless, empty streets of the necropolis, but made no progress. It seemed that I had passed through the same great avenue of trees several times, and I was beginning to despair of finding the station. These trees cast giant shadows across my path, and it was with a start that I saw a slender figure emerge from the darkness. Tall, all in black except for her pale face, 
it was the young lady again, and this time she simply took my hand in her own gloved hand, her elegant fingers entwined with mine. I stole sideways glances at her, trying to make out the colour of her heavy-lidded eyes beneath that veil as she led me along the darkening paths. Her voice was that of a gentlewoman, but what was she doing out in the evening unchaperoned? We talked as we walked together, inconsequential chatter perhaps, but her low and thrilling voice made a deep impression on me, as though it was speaking directly to my soul. It seemed an age, and yet no time at all, before we reached the bright lights of the railway station, where I was supposed to be reunited with my bride-to-be before we returned to London. For a moment I hesitated on the doorstep, and when I looked around for my Ariadne, she had gone. I did not even know her name. I turned around and looked for her, but found nothing, except for a small white handkerchief on the ground, with the initials L.L. I didn't even know if it was hers, but I put it in my pocket and walked back into the station dining room. Where have you been, Oswald? Never mind, you shall meet the vicar now. I might as well have been dead and buried like Mr. Osborne for all the attention I could pay to them both, as I could not stop my thoughts from running on the mysterious L.L. Flora's lips compressed into a thin line as I stammered my responses to the vicar, and I noticed her and Archie exchanging glances. Had she already told him of our plans? At last it was over, and I was released. I had rooms in Islington, comfortable enough, but not somewhere I could have ever have brought Flora. We had an unspoken understanding, she and I, that my gentlemanly appearance and education would go a long way to making up for my humble origins and lack of capital. As a clerk, I lived by my wits like so many others, and was not particularly well recompensed for them. It had never seemed to me a hardship not to marry for love, as it was not a sentiment with which I was familiar. I tossed and turned for hours, and eventually took a sleeping draught, falling into a fitful slumber well past midnight. It was not to be a restful sleep as I had a most disturbing dream. I had just been married, and my new bride and I were departing on our honeymoon on the Express d'Orion. She wore her travelling veil down as we boarded the train, but her tall, graceful figure and beautiful hands were unquestionably those of L.L. We got on board with our trunks and baggage, and settled into our sleeping compartment full of excitement at the night ahead of us. The train began to move through the night, faster and faster, an almost demonic rhythm. I told my bride I was stepping out for a smoke, such as the irritating perversity of dreams, and started walking through the train. The dining car was empty, but the tables were piled high with food. Oysters, lobsters, a joint of beef, and bottles of champagne. As I walked through, I noticed more and more empty carriages. Where were the other passengers? 
I reached the front of the train. The stoker was a man of colossal size, his sinews and muscles bulging as he continually heaped more coal into the furnace. As I watched, he was enveloped in tongues of flame, his giant hands still feeding the fire as it started to spread. Horrified, I began to run back through the train. The flames followed behind me at a preternatural speed. The plates of food were now writhing with maggots and decay, and waiters stood unmoving, their eyes empty sockets. My bride awaited me. She lay in her couchette, and I gathered her in my arms and lifted her veil. Oh, my God! Her face was destroyed. I cannot get it out of my mind. I awoke late, even for a Sunday, entwined in my bedclothes and somewhat feverish. Outside, the sky was leaden grey. I could not think of eating, so I took my Macintosh and umbrella and headed out. I found my footsteps leading me to Waterloo and the Necropolis Railway once again. I bought a ticket for the third class, hoping to remain unobserved by anyone known to me. I pulled my hat down over my brow and listened idly to the lamentations of my fellow passengers as the train pulled out. They appeared to be music-hall artists or players of the poorer sort, and a lively crowd, who in a less agitated frame of mind I would have found very entertaining. Are you here for old Morton? inquired one fellow, a rubicund gentleman sporting fine mutton-chop whiskers. I inclined my head. Seems only yesterday he was first on the bill at the Adelphi, and now he'll be six feet under an actor's acre. We arrived at the same part of the graveyard with the humbler memorials. I found myself standing while the mourners sang and played with great verve and skill. The rain fell harder and harder, but they sang on, while I began to feel even more sick and giddy. To my astonishment, as well as an accomplished violin solo and several hymns, there was a bawdy music hall song and at the end the mourners raised their glasses primed with beer to Old Morton. I was about to move away to continue my search when I saw her once more. She stood across from me, a little apart from the rest of the group, wearing the same garb as before, but this time she had her mourning veil pulled back, so I could see her bright eyes and pale complexion. The service had reached its conclusion, and as the mourners came forward, one by one, to throw earth on their friend's coffin, I tried to find her, but she had slipped away once again. Ignoring the surprised looks and whispers of the people standing around the open grave, I ran away from them in the direction I thought she had taken, ignoring the mud that impeded my progress. I had forgotten my umbrella in my haste, and the rain poured into my eyes so I could scarcely see. Inevitably, I fell to the ground and found myself prostrate in front of one of the memorial headstones. On it were engraved these simple words. Out, out, brief candle. L. L. Tragedian. 1860 to 1885. That was... The Necropolis Railway, written by Tabitha Potts and read by Nigel Fife. The producer was Tabitha Potts.
In March, we'll be having a special interview with Lindsay Gillespie, one of our writers, who has been shortlisted for the Costa Short Story Award. So please come back to hear our interview with Lindsay. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>